Morning. I realize now why God made me bald. Because if I had to dry my hair to get here, Uh (laughs) y'all would still be waiting for a pastor up on the pulpit. (laughs) It is so wonderful to celebrate the baptism uh, of those seven individuals and continue to pray Uh, for them and over them, and even if you've never been baptized or if you've never received Christ, my prayer is that you you come to a knowledge of who God is and that he changes your life and that you would one day uh, follow along in that same step. I want to just kind of give you uh, some exciting news. You see a drum set behind me, and uh, in a couple weeks on March 22nd, we are hoping uh, to present a candidate uh, for a worship arts director. As you know, uh, we have been searching for one, and our search committee has been interviewing, and he's currently uh, kind of doing a working interview with our praise team. Uh, and our goal would be uh, that if he is the one that we want to present, uh, we'll be doing that on March 22nd. That's two weeks from today. Uh, it will be a combined service uh, because of spring break, but we do think it gives everybody an opportunity, kind of an equal opportunity to come and, and see how uh, he is doing and, and what that candidate uh, would be about. He's going to share his testimony. Uh, like I said, we are still evaluating. We'll know uh, as of this week if that's the direction that we're going to go forward with. But because of the way our bylaws are written, I have to give you two weeks' notice. So uh, this is what that two weeks' notice is about. But like I said, if we choose not to move forward, we are praying for God's will. Not my will, not anybody else's will. We're praying for God's will in that. And we just ask that you continue to, uh, to pray for us in that as well. We're also excited about our new series, Dying Declarations, talking about what Jesus said from the cross. You might want to know why, you know, why would we even call out these sayings that Jesus said from the cross? I mean, it certainly is obvious that every word that Jesus said was purposeful. Every word that Jesus said is valuable. Everything that we base you know, our faith on, everything that we base, you know, it's the foundation of what we believe is the message of his ministry. So why would we call out the things that he says from the cross? I think it's important that we have to acknowledge what they might have in common as we see a common theme through what he is saying. They proclaim his love, his mercy, his grace. But also, how many of you have said something interesting in a period of suffering? Anyone? You know, suffering reveals interesting things about us, right? Well, Christ's suffering reveals important things about him. And while when you suffer, you might say something that you don't want anyone else to hear, or you might say something that you regret, when Christ said these things in the midst of his suffering, we need to pay attention. We need to know these things about him. It's important that we remember that as Christ is talking from the cross, that he has already experienced immeasurable suffering. He was beaten. They mocked him. They pulled out his beard. They spit on him. He had received 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails. That's about 1,500 wounds on on his back. And then after all of that, well, they had taken the crown of thorns and they, they placed it on his skull and they drove it into his head where they came. And then after all of that, they forced him to carry his cross up the hill. And when they get there, he nailed, they nail him to the cross and he begins to speak. So it's important for us to remember that he is suffering in the midst of all of that. You see, the message that Jesus is delivering in the midst of his suffering is a message of grace. It's a message of love. It's a message that we know that the cross does not signify the end of Jesus' life, rather the beginning of our life in him. 
Now, yes, he died on the cross. Do not get me wrong. He died on the cross. He died on the cross. And from that, he rose three days later. Right? So it's not the end of his life. He just died, and then three days he continued living. Right? And so I think what we need to realize is that the crucifixion does not signify the end of his life, but the beginning of our life in him. So as we start this series, I think we need to pray that we hear the message that he has given. You know, in in the Gospels, seven times Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And then in the book of Revelation, seven times Jesus tells John to write in letters to the churches, he who has ears, let him hear. It would be my prayer today that we hear what God is saying. Not just that we hear it, but that we're listening, that we pay attention, that it, it, it impacts us. I would even pray that we don't even just learn something new about the scripture. I, I love to learn new things about the scripture, but I want to learn something new about God. I want him to, to impact me with his truth. My prayer would also be that through this message or even through this series, that eternity would be changed. Whether it's for you or someone that you know, my prayer would be that someone comes to know God and that they might want to stand in baptism as well. So as we start this series, as we start today's message, let's give this time to God in prayer. Father, we come to you today and we thank you, Lord, for your love and for your grace. God, I just ask that you would meet us in this place. We are surrendering our lives. We surrender our hearts. We surrender our spirits to you. If there's anything in us that separates us from you, God, take it away right now. We lay it at your feet. God, it is all yours. Confront us with your truth. Let us know what you would want us to do. Help us to hear you, Lord. Not in the periphery, but God, so clearly and so plainly. Let your presence be so thick in this place that not only do we acknowledge that we were in your presence, but that we are changed by your presence, God. If there is anyone here today, God, that does not know you, let them feel you tugging on their heartstrings. Let them hear you speaking directly to them today, Lord. Let the trajectory of their eternity change in this time. Let them surrender whatever they have been holding back, God, and let them come to you. God, we thank you for what you are going to do in this time. We worship you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, it's important to remember that what Jesus said from the cross was during, in the midst of, unimaginable suffering. And it's almost more so important for us to remember that today because the first thing that Jesus said from the cross was, Father, forgive them. In Luke 23, it says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there uh, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So when we look at this, Jesus is from the cross, and he looks down, and he sees the men who beat him. He sees the men who spit on him. 
He sees the man who pulled out his beard. He sees the man who chained him to uh, the place where he would be whipped. He sees the man who drove the crown of thorns into his head, who nailed him to the cross. And in looking at them, he says, Father, forgive them. He was brutalized to a point where the Bible says that he was not recognizable as a man. And then he says something that I don't think any man, other man anyways, could say in that moment. He says, Father, forgive them. To to understand the significance of this statement and its application to our life, I think we really need to understand a little bit more about what forgiveness is. It is the intentional and voluntary process by which a victim undergoes a change in feelings and attitude regarding an offense and overcomes negative emotions such as resentment and vengeance. Now, we don't often talk about Jesus or use the word victim when we talk about Jesus. Because you know, in our culture, I think victim has a, a negative connotation. Things like victim mentality, or we don't want people to identify uh, as a victim. We want them to move beyond what they've experienced. You know, this is prevalent in our culture. And you might say, well, Jesus, how can he be a victim if he chose to do, to experience what he was experiencing? And I understand that because it certainly was a choice. He chose to suffer for us, but we must understand that he did not relish in his suffering. We know that before he suffered in the garden, when he prayed, he prayed to God, God, if there is any way to save our beloved other than having me die, other than me experiencing this, then take this cup of suffering from me. But if there is no other way, let your will be done, not mine. And so we understand that Jesus was willfully choosing to suffer to receive the punishment that we deserve. And when I think about it, what's amazing is Jesus looked down from the cross at the men who had the hammers, who had the nails, who had nailed him to the cross. They're literally gambling for his clothes. And instead of asking God to judge them, instead of asking God to punish them, Jesus took that punishment upon himself in that moment. This is so significant because we think about forgiveness and we say, well, Jesus just, maybe he just released them from judgment. No, he took the judgment that those men deserved for putting him on the cross. He took it upon himself. And what we have to realize is that it would be foolish for us to think that Jesus was only talking about those men. Because I will tell you, that I was holding a hammer that day. I was holding the nails. And you were right there with me. It was because of my sin, it was because of your sin, that Jesus was there in the first place. If, if there was not sin in the world, Jesus wouldn't have been on the cross. And so when Jesus looks down from the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, he's talking to me. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. What a beautiful picture that we get to see of Jesus' grace. Whether you believe it or not, we are all in need of that grace. Listen, we have all done things that we are ashamed of. Every single one of us. We've done things that we would classify as bad. 
right? I mean, and it is, it, I, I hope I'm not the only one. I'm sure I'm not the only one, actually, that has, has done that. What we need to understand, though, is the only reason that I can call something bad is because I understand that there is something that is good. Think about darkness and light. Can you define darkness? How do you define darkness? The absence of light. Bad is the absence of good. But these two constructs that the world defines its morality on, they only exist because there is a standard of complete goodness. Not in the world, out of the world. That standard of goodness, that standard of complete goodness, it's a standard of perfection. It's a standard of holiness. It is God. And not one of us could ever measure up to that standard. No one. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. I would imagine that like me, you would not want the, the actions of your life, every thought that you've ever thought, every word that you've ever said, you would not want them projected on these screens this morning. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. It doesn't matter if you were raised in the church, born in the church. None of us would want that to happen. We have regrets. We have times and actions where we have hurt the ones that we've loved. Where we have chosen ourselves instead of and above the ones that we love. Where if everyone knew this one thing about us, it would change how they thought about us. Well, those things are called sin. And even though they might have brought you know, some kind of enjoyment in the moment that they were experienced, we must realize that they only ever lead to death. In Romans 6, it says, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of, the things that result in death? The pastor I had growing up, he always shot from the hip. And he would say, listen, if sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. But he said, at some point, that fun runs out. And what we are left with is a feeling of regret. What we are left with is an acknowledgement that that thing that once brought gratification only leads to death. And that death is more than just a physical death. It is a spiritual death. It is an eternal death. It is eternal separation from God. How do we know this? Because two verses later, after Paul said this, he said, this, in Romans 6.23, he says, For the wages of sin is death. The wages, the, the, um, the, the return, the consequence of the sin that only leads to death is death. And he contrasts that death with this. He says, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what he's doing is he's saying, Those things that you are now ashamed of, the things that only lead to death, he contrasts them to the life that only comes from Christ. And he says, that life is eternal. That life is forever. That life will never end. And so because of that, we can draw the conclusion that sin, the death that comes from sin, is the opposite of eternal life. It is eternal death. It is separation from God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But God did not want any one of us to experience that death. 
We were created to be in connection with God for all of eternity. When you read in Genesis and you read the, the creation story and you read about Adam and Eve and how they were with God in his presence before the fall, that is what we were created to be. Can you imagine if they had never sinned? Do you know where we, we, where we would be today? In the garden. We'd be in the garden. We wouldn't be here. We would be in God's presence. But because of sin, sin came in and, and, and broke that connection that we were meant to have with God. It separated us from him. And you might say, well, isn't God, like I thought God was all powerful. Isn't he big enough? Isn't he powerful enough to overcome that separation? Doesn't he love me enough to overcome the separation that sin creates? Yes, he is powerful enough. Yes, he is strong enough. Yes, he is big enough. Yes, he does love you enough. He did the only thing that could ever be done to overcome the power of sin. He sent his son into the world to be a sacrifice for us. The question that we asked the, the, the baptismal candidates this morning, do you believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he never sinned? Yes. You heard Elijah. He screamed. He was proud. It was good. Do you believe that because Christ died and he shed his blood that your sins have been washed away? Yes. You see, God is powerful enough. He is big enough. He does love you enough. He did the only thing that could ever be done to overcome sin. He sent his son. We see this beautiful illustration of what that looks like in Isaiah 53. I invite you to turn with me there. We're going to read the whole chapter. And I'm going to pause a few times just to highlight and like reflect on what the words are telling us. So Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this is talking about Jesus. It's a prophecy about Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah starts off this chapter where he's prophesying about Jesus by letting us know that in appearance, that as a man, Jesus was ordinary. That there's nothing about him that would make you esteem him. He was just like another man. He was fully man. And it says that he was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. What that tells me is that Jesus experienced rejection, not just on the cross, but his entire life. When I think about the culture that he was born into, don't you think that he experienced rejection every day? Don't you think that he experienced ridicule every day because his mother was pregnant before she was married? That stigma still exists in our world. 
One of the things that we must realize is Jesus identifies with the rejection that we feel. He identifies with the suffering that we've experienced. It says that he experienced those things and we esteemed him not. We didn't look at him as someone that we should go to. We didn't look at him as someone that would identify us, identify with us. Rather, we esteemed him as afflicted and stricken by God and rejected. And so it says the people of the time, they chose not to go. Surely he has borne our griefs, yet we esteemed him not. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, the, the, the custom would be that if someone who was dying, it would take a few days to die on the cross. And the custom would be that if they were not dying fast enough, that the guards would go and break the legs of the men that were being crucified or the people that were being crucified because then they would not be able to hoist themselves up to breathe. Well, there's a prophecy that says Jesus would not have any bone broken. But, so what we have to realize is, you know, because of the timing of when things happen. So Jesus died on Good Friday and they didn't want him to be still on the cross for Passover. So they said, let's go rush this along. And when they went to break his legs, the guards realized, well, wait a minute, he's already dead. And so they took a spear and they made it right through his ribs and they pierced his heart and a mixture of water and blood come out. His heart had exploded. He was overcome. He he surrendered his life, but it's through that blood that was shed that our transgressions, our sins were washed away. And it says that we were, or he was crushed for our iniquities. The crushed, in, in your translation, might say bruised for our iniquities. Iniquities are those things inside of us. It's the bent towards sin. It's why we give in to temptation. And when he says that he was crushed for those iniquities, he bled internally so that the sin that we have inside of us could be washed away. And through all of this, the punishment that we deserve, the chastisement that brought us peace, it means the punishment that put us, put us at peace with God was given to Jesus. It was put on him. And it's because of his stripes that we are healed. Picking up in verse 6. And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, a few chapters later, Isaiah says that there is no one righteous, not even one, that our our righteousness is like filthy rags. Every single one of us have gone astray. Every single one of us have sinned. And and God says, I lay upon my son those iniquities. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before it, shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What's interesting is as you read through the Gospels about the story of Jesus' crucifixion, his trial and crucifixion, he was eerily silent. To a point that even his accusers would say, aren't you going to answer us? Because for the most part, he was quiet. But when he got to the cross, he started to speak. It says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. A lamb that is going to the slaughter doesn't know where it's going, and so it doesn't resist. Jesus knew where he was going and still didn't resist. 
He didn't resist because he knew this is what he was called to do. He knew this was the will of God. In verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? It says, No one understood why he came. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was to put, he has put him to grief. Listen, God knew. So he created us. He created us to be in connection with him for all of eternity. The Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. So that means that when God said, let there be light, it was already known to God that Jesus was going to die. He already knew that he was going to make the greatest sacrifice so that we could be in with him forever. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. What he's saying is because of Adam, sin entered into the world. Because of Adam and Eve, because of what happened in the garden, we aren't in the garden anymore. That we all have to deal with sin in our lives. But it's because of Christ that we are made righteous. He says that our iniquities were placed upon him and his righteousness was placed upon us. He says, my son, my offspring, this Jesus, he will make many righteous because I have placed their iniquities on him. Isaiah 64, like I said, it says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. But in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is no better trade in all history. God took our sin and made us his righteousness through his son. Therefore, I will divide, uh, divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. God says, because Jesus counted himself as a sinner, because he took the punishment for sin, he would reward him. He will divide with him a portion of the many, divide that with the strong. You know what? We are the strong. We are who he's talking about. He says, we were once transgressors, but because of the sacrifice of Christ, we are made strong in him, and then we get an eternity with him. In Romans and in Corinthians, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ. That what he receives from God, we share. Because he was counted, he was numbered as the transgressor. He bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. What that means is right this moment. Jesus is in the presence of God. And those things that you would be worried about being on this screen, when God says to Jesus, well, what about this that John did? Jesus says, yeah, but John has applied the blood of my sacrifice to his life. He is forgiven. Because he has washed that away. His, his forgiveness is available to us. There is no greater act, no greater demonstration of love other than what Jesus has given us. He experienced punishment. He took my punishment. 
Our sin deserves punishment. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died for you so that you could have life. And he did this knowing that one day you may never respond. He did this before you were even given a chance to respond. In Romans chapter 5, it says Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. He says that we were so deep in our condition of sin, not even aware of where we were, not even aware of the separation that existed between us and God, and Jesus says, I'm going to die. Jesus experienced that punishment. We can understand someone dying uh, for someone we're dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. Your translation might say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of that condition, in the midst of being separate from him, Jesus died. He died. He put his love on the line. Now that we are set right with God by the means of his sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no question of being at, at, at odds with God in any way. So if then, when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his resurrection life. What this means is that when we were at our worst, when we were in the middle of our sinful condition and Jesus died for us, we were put right with God by his death. But it's through his resurrection life, not only do I have hope for eternity, I have hope for today. You see, I'm not waiting until I die to experience eternal life. I am living eternal life right now. It began the moment that I received Jesus as my Savior. And so when I, with the hope that I have is because he died for me and my sins are washed away and I'm made right with him because he rose three days later, I can walk alive right now. I don't have to be burdened down with the shame and regret. Listen, I have sinned just like you have. I have regrets. I have shame about what has happened in my life. But you know what? Jesus bore my shame and I can walk free of that burden because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. We are made alive in him. When Jesus was on the cross and he looks down and he sees you and he sees me with hammers and nails. And he says, Father, forgive them. What he is doing, he is demonstrating that God has always been prepared to do whatever it takes to receive you to himself. He's always been ready. Always. This is even evident in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God actually said, he says, the fire of the burnt offering will never go out. Because he wanted his people to always have the opportunity to come and return to him. Today is an opportunity for someone. He looks down from the cross and he offers forgiveness in the midst of our struggle. He wants us to know that we don't have to live with that burden of regret and shame any longer. 
There's a story in the Old Testament that reflects this and helps us to gain a better understanding of the grace that God offers and then the required response that each of us might have. And it's the story of Esther. You might say, well, I'm not seeing the connection. Trust me, we'll get there. You see, in Esther, she was an orphan. She was living with her cousin Mordecai. And there was a man named Haman who was an authority in the kingdom. And Haman would walk by Mordecai and Mordecai would refuse to bow. And so Haman would say, he said to the king, hey, there's a group of people who doesn't worship the God, who don't worship the gods we do, who don't respect us the way that they should. Hey, king, don't you think we should just kill all of these people? And the king, not knowing what he was doing, said yes, and he had signed the death warrant for his wife and her entire, her entire people. And so now she is faced with a very difficult situation. She needs to go to the king. She needs to go and express what is going on. The problem is, she can't go to the king uninvited. If she walks into the king's presence uninvited, and he does not extend his scepter to her, if he doesn't extend a scepter saying, yes, you have my favor, yes, you have my grace, yes, I want you with me, that carried a death sentence. And so Esther has confronted and needing to know what to do. Her cousin says, who knows, but maybe it was for such a time as this that you have been made queen. Who knows that maybe for such a time of this that you are in this situation. And so she tells her family, those that were close to her, she says, fast for three days. I will fast with you. And then this happens. In Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting in his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. I mean, this is a a, a describing pretty intimidating scene. He's in his throne room. He's on his throne. This is the moment, like there is no turning back from this step. And it says, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What we see Esther was confronted with a situation that she could not overcome on her own. She was dependent on the king's grace. She was dependent on the king's favor. You and I are confronted with a situation that we cannot overcome on our own. That situation is sin. We are equally dependent on the king's favor. Equally dependent on his grace. We must with boldness go to his throne just like Esther did expecting to receive the gift that he has promised us. In Hebrews chapter 4, we get an illustration of what that might look like. It says, since then we have a great high priest, he's talking about Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Listen. Jesus has experienced every temptation that you have. Every single one. Yet he did not sin. He did not sin. He identifies with the struggle, but he overcame. That's not not meant to make you feel shame. That's meant to give you hope that if you put your hope in him, he has already defeated the power of the sin that you struggle with. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
The writer of Hebrews is helping us to draw that parallel between Esther's situation and our own. He points back to Jesus' death on the cross that uh, through his sacrifice, Jesus passed through the heavens and intercedes on our behalf. That he is there with God, speaking to the forgiveness that is given through his sacrifice. He identifies with us. He was tempted in every way, but he did not sin. And because he has overcome, because he died for us, because he demonstrated his love for us, we must go to God's throne expecting to receive the grace that is promised. You see, God has extended the scepter. That cross is the scepter of God's grace extended to bring us from death to life. We must receive that grace to ourselves. This week is a big birthday week in my family. My son turns 15 on Wednesday. My sister has a birthday on Thursday. I'm not going to tell you how old. And my, my twin girls have a birthday on Friday. They turn two. Now, like with, with my children, we experienced this at Christmas, and I'm sure you did as well. If you have young children, or teenagers for that matter, you hand them a present. Do you think that Samuel, when, if I give him a birthday present, do you think he's just going to set it on his dresser and say, man, that's a nice present. That's my present. That's the gift that my father has given me. Do you think that, that that's what he's going to do? No, he's going to open it. He's going to receive the gift to himself. The gift doesn't mean anything to him until he has opened it, until he has taken possession of it. We have been given grace. It was offered freely, but we must receive it to ourselves. We must take possession of that grace. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, let's look to Esther. What did she do? It says that after three days, she put on her robes as queen. It says that she realized that to be in the presence of the king, she needed to be made out in the way that he had made her. Now, she had, they were already married. She was an orphan. She was poor. But because she had already won his favor, the king made her his bride. We were dead in sin. We were dead in trespass. But because we have earned the favor of God... He has made us his bride if we receive his grace. Esther just simply started to dress like the bride of the king. She said, I'm not going to dress like that anymore. I'm going to dress like the queen that I have been made out to be. Jesus tells a parable about a king who was celebrating the wedding of his son. And he sent invitations out to the rich. He sent invitations out to the influential. He sent invitations out to his friends. And every single one of them said, nope. I got better things to do. I'm not coming. And so the king tells his servants, you go out into the streets and you get everybody. I want everybody. I want my kingdom full to celebrate this, this, this party, my, my son's wedding. And so they go out and they bring everyone that they can find into the palace, into the kingdom. And the king says, well, I know that you don't have the ability to provide yourself with the robe. But if you're coming to my house, if you're coming to my party to celebrate my son, you're going to be dressed the right way. You're going to be dressed for a wedding. And so he provides robes out of his own wealth. And as he is walking around, enjoying the party, he sees a man who had refused to put the robe on. And the king tells his servants, you get that man and you throw him out. Throw him out of the kingdom. He says, if you're not going to be dressed 
and the robe that I have provided you, you will not be in my kingdom. So the lesson for us today is that we have to move, we have to take off the filthy rags that we were wearing that are associated with our former way of life and we put on the robe of righteousness that Christ has offered us. That great trait of our sin for his righteousness. Lay down that former way of life and put on the robe of righteousness that is from Christ, that only he could give. We must abandon our old way of life and surrender to the Father. Just as Jesus willfully and intentionally got on the cross, just as Jesus willfully and intentionally offers forgiveness, we must willfully and intentionally abandon our old way of life. How do we demonstrate our receipt of the gift of grace? How do we acknowledge that we have taken it to ourselves? We abandon our old way of life and walk as the children of God that we were created to be. We walk in the life that only he can offer. What else? Well, as Esther saw that the king had extended his scepter, she entered the throne room and she touched it. She made a confession with her action that she had received the grace that the king had given her. We had seven people today make a confession with their mouth and with their action that they have received the grace that God has given them. You see, it's when we confess that we receive. In Romans, it says, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. That simple. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. First John 1, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you tired of carrying around the burden of shame? Are you tired of carrying around the burden of regret? Do you acknowledge this morning that you want something different? That something different can only come from God. He looked down on you from outside of time, acknowledging the struggle that you would be experiencing in this moment. And that's why he sent his son. He sent his son into this world to save us, to take away our sin, to take the punishment for our sin so that we might one day be with him forever, but every day walk in eternal life. The ages of the people that were baptized, the youngest was seven. Sometimes I think it might be easier for a child to acknowledge their condition and their need of Christ. And because of that, it's no wonder that Jesus said, if you want to enter my kingdom, you must become like a child. You must become dependent on me. I've had the privilege of baptizing both of my older children, my niece, my best friend's children, and I get so much joy Every time I baptize someone, every time that they say that word, yes, child or adult, every time that they make that proclamation, that they make that confession, you know what? I am emboldened. I am emboldened. 
Because they stood in front of you, not even knowing many of you, and they said, I believe. I believe. What do you need to confess this morning? We all have those things that separate us from God. You see, Jesus on the cross, he looked down and he said, Father, forgive them. He offered forgiveness when we didn't deserve it, but it was a gift. We need to receive it. We must come to this place where we acknowledge that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. That he has offered forgiveness. Now, we must ask ourselves, how are we going to respond to that grace? I'd imagine that there might be someone in here that has never responded to that grace. Or maybe you have, but you're not living the way that you should. Maybe you, maybe you haven't put on that robe yet. Don't let another moment pass by without making that decision. We are not promised tomorrow. We are not. If Christ were to come back or if you were to die before you have that opportunity, eternal separation from God is the only thing that awaits you. But if you make that decision, you can live without fear of anything that might come your way because of Christ. Have you responded? Have you confessed your sin and that Jesus is Lord? Listen, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of invitation. While I pray during this song, whenever you want to, these altars are open. If you want to receive that gift today, do not wait. Come to me. I will pray with you. Come to our other deacons or elders that might be up here. They will pray with you. The water is still in the baptismal pool. If you want to get baptized, let's go. I was preparing this morning, as I often do, and was wanting to read something in the story of Esther again, and I was trying to go back in my iPad to, um, to, that, to the book of Esther, and my iPad wouldn't go. It was on Acts chapter 8. And I was like, okay, God, come on. You know, I was like, well, it's on airplane mode. I've got to take it off airplane mode. And I put it on Wi-Fi, and it still wouldn't move. And I was like, okay, well, all right, John, maybe God wants you to look at something in Acts chapter 8. There are two stories in Acts chapter 8 of men who are saved and are baptized in the same experience. Like I said, the water is there. It's warm. We can all go back and celebrate. I just want you to know that God is offering forgiveness today. That gift has been handed. The scepter of God's grace has been extended. How are you going to respond? Father, we come to you today and we thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his perfect life offered freely and willingly and, and intentionally on the cross. I thank you for the grace that, that has been given to me and to so many here. We take a moment, Lord, and in view of your mercy, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, God, committing every moment, every breath, Lord, to your service, every, every instant that we are awake and alive, God, for you. My prayer, Lord, is for those here, Lord, that, that may have never received that gift of grace, God. Let them feel their heart beating through their chest. Let them 
feel you and hear you calling them home to you today. Let them know what is simple as confessing, believing. God, if there are others who have received, Lord, but they're not living, they, are, they haven't put on that robe of righteousness, God. Let us throw aside our filthy rags, Lord, and be clothed, be overshadowed by the righteousness that only comes from you. Forgive us for trying to do things on our own. Forgive us for holding on to things that we shouldn't. Forgive us for resisting up to this point, God, but break that resistance down and draw us to you. We thank you for your love. I thank you for what you're doing in this place and the lives of these people. May eternity be changed. If you are here, you have never received that gift of salvation, and you want to do that, I invite you to pray with me right now. Father, God, I have sinned. I have shame. I have regret. I have hurt the people that I love. I've hurt you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die. To shed his blood before I even had a chance to respond. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of those things that I've done that bring shame and regret. Wash my sins away by the blood of Jesus. Make me new. I confess my sin. I confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe that you raised him from the dead. Let me begin that eternal life right now. Make me like you, Lord. Help me to live the way you want me to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Every head is bowed, every eye is still closed. Listen. If you made that commitment this morning, will you proclaim it? Will you learn and be inspired by those seven individuals that stood before you, that stood before all of us and said, I believe in Jesus. He is my Savior. Would you be willing to just put your hand in the air right now and acknowledge that you have received salvation, that you have received that gift of grace? Father, for those that might have said that prayer, Lord, embolden them in their walk. Help them to follow you, to proclaim you. We thank you for your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.